BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The first snowstorm this year for New York City should not have been this memorable. A manageable six inches of snow come down in a hurry, but the region was gridlocked early on in the event. Was this a forecast fail, a communication calamity, or just pitiful planning? The Weather Channel's winter weather expert, Tom Nizio, has spent decades forecasting and communicating winter weather. He joins us today to talk about this event and the handful of others where winter weather seems to catch cities by surprise. Just what can be done to prevent the situations from happening again? I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And Tom, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great to be here. Today. Yeah, I know we've talked before on the, the TV version of the show. We've got so much time and there's so much I want to get to because I think everyone remembers this event in New York City uh, a week or so ago from the point at which we're taping this podcast. Six inches of snow. And, you know, people in New York always get on to us down here in the south about that amount of snow. But this one caused gridlock. I want to introduce it first, and then I want to kind of dig into who you are, and then we'll circle back to it. So let's just set the stage for that event. Well, it was really amazing. We're talking about a northern city, New York City, and they pride themselves on the ability to uh, remove snow, to right. handle situations like this. A midwinter six-inch snowstorm where the snow rates are relatively light over a long period of time that may occur overnight, that's one thing. But when everything comes together at the same time, at the absolute worst time of day, with other factors combining, it turns into a disaster. And Marshall Life often talked about um, weather catastrophes or calamities. And in my career, over 30 years in the National Weather Service and now here at the Weather Channel for several years, it's interesting. Every one of these that I see is a combination of factors. Each one in themselves could cause some inconvenience, right. but when you bring them all together at the wrong place and wrong time, it turns into something that can be disastrous. And and we're going to, this is why I love the format we have now with the Weather Geeks podcast, because Tom and I are going to dig deeply into this event. But before we do that, I want to introduce our listeners. I think most people that listen to us know who you are, but you just mentioned that you're, you're the winter weather expert here at the Weather Channel, spent uh, much of your career at the Weather Service before coming here. Tell us a little bit about how you got into being a winter weather expert? I mean, I know you're a meteorologist, but how did you end up being a specialist in winter weather? Well, I was born and raised in a place called Buffalo, well, New York. Well, that'll do it right there. <laughs> so right. that pretty much takes care of it. But sure. my, my entire life, I loved winter weather, and I wanted to understand how the atmosphere produces this surreal type of precipitation. And so I began my career, actually, in the National Weather Service in Buffalo after a few years in research forecasting the weather. Uh, stayed at that office. I was having so much fun working with winter weather. I stayed there as a forecaster, a science officer, and eventually the meteorologist in charge. So 32 years of working with winter weather, communicating with emergency managers, dealing with all kinds of storms from lake effect snows to major winter storms. Uh, at the end of that career, I had this wonderful opportunity to now share my enthusiasm and my knowledge of winter weather 
on the Weather Channel. And I've been here as their expert for the past seven years. Yeah, it's amazing that you've been here that long and doing an amazing job. I think uh, like you and Dr. Forbes and others, I think people tune in to hear what you have to say about these events. And so let's zero in on this particular event that that happened uh, or mid mid November uh, in the New York City, mid Atlantic area. Now, I, I did a little digging. I even wrote a little bit about this in Forbes myself. I mean, it was clear that there was going to be some type of winter event in the Mid-Atlantic and up into New York and New Jersey. I guess the question was, did anyone see six to 10 inches of snowfall and the freezing event that was associated with it? I mean, I, I know we were talking about some things that you saw here at the Weather Channel. So let's dig into that. Well, I'll tell you, looking at any type of East Coast snowstorm that develops, oftentimes the rain-snow line, the difference from very little precipitation, maybe even rainfall, to 10 inches of snow may only span a distance of about 20 or 30 miles. And indeed, we were sort of in that situation with New York City leading into this. We all realized that there was going to be wintry weather to the north and west of New York City, No question. This was a slam dunk. They were going to get hit with some heavy snowfall and some freezing rain and sleet. New York City was right on that border. And leading up to the event, many of the computer models had suggested it would be too warm for significant snowfall in New York City. But some of the models, mainly our high-resolution mesoscale models, that can capture some of these small-scale processes in the atmosphere— they were beginning to show that hmm, conditions were going to probably be a little colder than what the other models were suggesting. We had this big high-pressure system to the north in New England, and that was funneling cold, dry air down across the northeast. What was interesting about this, and I looked at the model soundings the night before, that cold, dry air was significant because as precipitation began across the area— it would evaporate as it fall, uh, fell from the clouds. That process, uh, Marshall, is a cooling process. Yeah. So that process in itself was going to drive the temperatures down. The other thing that we're looking at is the wind direction. plays such an important role on the coast. If the wind comes off that warm ocean, oftentimes it'll moderate the surface temperatures so you will either get rain or snowfall will melt very quickly when it comes down. But boy, if those winds stay off the land... That is a very cold wind. That's cold drainage that comes down out of northern New England. And these were the very, very small-scale, subtle features that were setting up the night before and that morning to turn this into a significant and, in some ways, debilitating (laughs) snowfall. Yeah, I know people were climbing out and stuck on the George Washington Bridge, climbing out of their Ubers and taxis. But what you just heard uh, Tom talk about was some really good weather geeky type stuff because he was talking about evaporative cooling, uh, dry air, and and as such as the precipitation falls, you get evaporative cooling, and that cools the the column of air beneath the cloud. And, uh, you know, let's just... I mean, we're weather geeks here. Let's geek out for a second time. Let's just go back before we kind of pick back up on this, because I think it's important for the geeks, uh, weather geeks and listeners to understand. Talk about the process that happens between getting precipitation that's either snow, sleet, or freezing rain at the surface. It has to do with the temperature column, right? Yeah, it's so important. And for the models to simulate that accurately is a huge challenge. Well, let's start with rain. It may be snowing way up in the atmosphere. Exactly. But... As the snow drops through warmer layers above freezing, the snow will melt and it ends up as rain at the surface. 
let's go to the other end of the spectrum, snowfall. It's very cold up in the higher elevations of the atmosphere, and it stays cold throughout that entire column. So snow develops in those clouds and falls through the cold air and lands as snow. If, however, as in this case, we have a weather system that is moving up from the south, and it has warm air that is going to infiltrate that column of air at some level above the surface, then snow may begin way up in the clouds, but when it hits that warm air, it will melt. It can turn then into raindrops. Those raindrops then may fall back into the cold air. If that cold air now heading to the surface is deep enough, those little raindrops freeze into little balls of ice we refer to as sleet. And not hail. I often hear people during winter events say, hey, Dr. Shepard is hailing. No, it's probably sleeting. That's right. They look like little BBs is the way I, I describe that. Okay, so that's sleet. Now our most dangerous winter weather um, uh, type of precipitation that I, uh, I consider is freezing rain. Same process. The snow starts up in the clouds. It falls through that layer of warm air. But that layer of warm air goes almost all the way down to the surface. So the snowflakes melt into raindrops. But as they get right to the surface, there's not enough time in cold in this shallow cold air for those raindrops to refreeze. But... The surface temperatures, the ground temperatures, may be below freezing. And if they are, those raindrops hit that area below freezing, branches, uh, roofs of cars, windshields, sidewalks, and freezes immediately into a glaze of ice. And that is extremely dangerous for driving. Yeah, and we, we here in the I grew up in the Atlanta area, we call that black ice down here. I don't know if it's called that all over the place. But I think one of the reasons I wanted to kind of dig into that and have Tom break that down is because the models then have to get that temperature profile just right. And you mentioned that the higher resolution models are sniffing it out a little bit. So did the National Weather Service and other um, private and other um, sort of weather entities sort of sniff this out? I mean, I, I saw some something that where the, the, you guys were sort of here at the Weather Channel were somewhat spot on with the numbers. How do, how do they compare? We actually were forecasting the uh, night before we were forecasting for a little over four inches of snow for New York City. Um, other forecast entities um, were much lower on that. They were looking at an inch of snow or less. Here at the Weather Channel, we use a very sophisticated process to ingest all types of model data from several models and and, uh, numerous models. That is a a, a very fine-tuned process that takes place here, and then the forecasters here will adjust that as necessary. We use many of these mesoscale models. Why we were better? I don't know. I can't explain that. We'd have to look into that a little more deeply. But the fact was, the night before, we were looking at some pretty significant snow in New York City. Yeah. What's fascinating about this, though, is the, the other component that comes into play, especially in highly populated areas— Timing, Marshall, as oh, everything. Well, we know all about that here in Atlanta uh, with the snow pop. Oh, I don't even know what we called it, snowpocalypse or uh, yep. snowzilla or whatever it was called. But I think the timing of that event illustrates that well. The, I think it was 2014 or so to, uh, where we had the event in mid-afternoon, rush hour, freezing temperatures. And in my career working in Buffalo, there were so many of these events that we studied and knew immediately that timing was so important. We had a three-foot snowstorm in Buffalo that occurred on a weekend a few decades ago when I was there. It produced hardly any impacts at all. But a six-inch snowstorm, not too different from this one here in Buffalo a few years after that, on a Monday afternoon at 5 p.m., 
caused all kinds of havoc for a city that is known for handling heavy snow. Boy, that's the same thing that happened here in the city. Yeah, and, and I want to, because I think many of us have discussed this sort of colder temperatures aspect of the storm, which I think you've laid out nicely. Um, I think Matthew Capucci wrote something in Capital Weather Gang where he also talked about something called frontogenesis or frontogenetic processes. So I want you to define or talk about what that is for our listeners and then how that perhaps led to what he talked about, which is this mesoscale banding into heavier rates uh, that maybe were not as sniffed out as early as we thought. And that was another important ingredient. And the mesoscale models, some of them were actually able to pick up this feature and predict that there was going to be this type of forcing in the atmosphere right over New York City and to the west of there during the afternoon hours. Frontogenesis, if you break down the words, we're talking about the genesis of a front, okay? And a front is a boundary between two air masses of different temperature. The strengthening of that boundary, not only at the surface, but up several thousand feet in the atmosphere, in a very simple sense, can cause rapid uplift or rapid motion in the atmosphere that can generate convective type of snow bands, similar to heavy rain showers or almost thunder showers that occur on that very small scale. And that's exactly what happened that afternoon. It was amazing. And There's another process that takes place here. We went from clear skies, dry conditions early in the afternoon to the rapid onset of snow just before the rush hour. And as that process started, those bands, that frontogenetic banding set up over New York City, we went into snowfall rates of two inches or more an hour coming down onto that surface. Temperatures at the surface were quite a bit colder than what some of the models were forecasting. In fact, there were anywhere from 33 to 35 degrees before the onset of snow. When the heavy snow began, another process took place in the atmosphere. Those heavy snowfall rates, when that snow hits the ground um, as we initially start off, that snow melts, and the process of melting at the surface can actually cause that surface to cool. cool That's another more. part Absolutely. of thermodynamics. Yeah, that this, we this study. is why we study thermodynamics and meteorology for these reasons. And as a matter of fact, at Central Park, we started out at 33 degrees at 2 in the afternoon. By 5.30 or 6 that evening, right in the heart of rush hour, the temperature dropped to critical levels. It actually dropped down to 28 or 29 degrees. Right. Now, in my career, watching the impacts that occurs with snowfall, you get down to 31, 32. The roads, the bridges, if they're not treated, they still can handle it. But when you drop down into the upper 20s, what happens is eventually that melting snow will refreeze. And that's likely what happened on the bridges, the overpasses. It came down at such a rate, there's no way that you could get Uh, the DOT crews out to do any type of plowing or any treatment in the middle of rush hour traffic in the most populated city in the United States. Well, and not only the most populated city, it's essentially an island. And so there are a lot of connecting points with bridges. And you talked about overpasses and bridges. Talk to us about why overpasses and bridges are particularly vulnerable to these icing events. Oh, this is so critical. Think of a standard road. The road is radiating its heat in one direction up into the atmosphere, but the ground underneath that, especially at this time of the year, is relatively warm. That insulates the roadway so it doesn't get that cold. But now take a road surface like a bridge. 
it releases its heat. It cools into the atmosphere and also underneath as well. So the bridges and overpasses oftentimes will be several degrees colder than the adjacent road that is on land. And that, again, is what happened. We saw all these images of massive traffic jams, slush and snow building up on these bridges. And, you you know, it's November. But with those kind of temperatures and those processes that take place, these subtle features came together to produce this disaster. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm talking with Tom Nizio, who is the winter weather expert at the Weather Channel. And we're talking about a, a mid-November snowstorm, modest by Northeast standards, but created chaos uh, in the month of November because of a, a set of unique circumstances. Uh, colder temperatures, mesoscale banding through frontogenetic processes. But now I want to talk about the other aspect of the storm. There were some politicians that came out and said, and from all sides of the aisle, so it's not a political thing, that the meteorologists or the forecast was bad. Gary Sadkowski, former MIC at, uh, there in Mount Holly, really pushed back on Twitter. He d- certainly said that there were some things about the forecast that I could probably cause some planning concerns. But there were others that suggested that there were many factors, not just meteorological, that were involved. What is your perspective on that discussion? Well, I went back and I looked at the National Weather Service forecast from two days before that right up to the event. And I will say certainly that the forecast for snowfall was underdone. Why it was underdone, we went through a number of reasons. Um, But I will tell you that as they got closer to the event in the National Weather Service office, they began to up their forecast snowfall amounts even that morning and there were statements out within the products that were issued that the afternoon drive would be very difficult snowfall rates would increase that type of information now when i look at that as a meteorologist with all the experience i've had you connect the dots on this and it spells disaster if the person driving to work hears all of this information along with all kinds of other extraneous information that's coming out it oftentimes doesn't connect with them. And these are this is one of the issues we have with communicating the impacts of winter weather, especially with timing in highly populated urban areas. Uh, in Hindcast, if you took, even with a snowfall forecast of an inch or two, if you were able to go back and talk to emergency managers, planners, DOT operators, and say, listen, guys and gals, when this starts, it's going to start right before rush hour. When it starts, it's not going to be a snow flurry. It's going to come down. It's going to come down heavy. It's going to coat the roadways immediately. It may drive the temperatures down. And by the time those hundreds of thousands of vehicles are released into the evening rush hour, if you don't get a handle on this ahead of time and have your crews prepared to be out there during the event as well, it could be disastrous. So 
ideas like getting out and pre-treating the roadways, um, that could have been very helpful in this case. There's no way that you're going to be able to have crews out there when snow's coming down at two inches an hour. Sure. That's just impossible with sure. all that traffic. But, what, what, but let, me, let me play devil's advocate for a second. If I'm a mayor or a governor and they are looking at the information that they're given at their morning briefing that says one inch of snow, I mean, from a cost-benefit analysis, um, do you put do you go ahead and do that? I, mean, I, I, I guess the question is where is the point at which there was enough information to make that decision? And literally put a price on that. That's like the $2 million question. It's the cost benefit. Let's look at it and let's decide. Let's say that in these types of cases where the probability of getting this type of event, by the way, when you looked at all the model data was certainly less than 50%. Most of the models were suggesting it was not going to be that bad. So now if I'm the mayor, I'm the city city planner, and I, I say, okay, Every time that we have even a 10% chance of getting this type of snowstorm, 10% chance, only one out of 10 times, we're going to close the city down. So nine out of 10 times, you close the city down and you don't have to. Every one of those times that you do that, think of the impact, the, the monetary loss. Think of just the simple fact of mom or dad having to stay home because right. the kids are going to be off from school. And this is what city managers have to weigh every single time we get one of these events. Yeah. And so that is that is really a big dilemma. Yeah, it is. One, others have talked about it, and I, I made this point as well in a Forbes article I wrote, really the first or one of the first events of the year, everybody was a little rusty uh, from sort of the you know, the managing side from the city perspective, perhaps even to the forecast side. Uh, can that matter, the sort of timing of when these events happen? This is the first one. Yeah, and, and even up in snowy Buffalo, New York, in the years that I was there, the first couple of snow events we always treated with a little more caution. We always gave a little more weight to the impacts that those types of snow events would Uh, produce on the population. People aren't ready for driving in winter weather. They may not even have their vehicles ready. They may not have a plan set. What do we do with the family if this happens, if that happens? All of these factors, do I leave earlier for work? What if there's a couple of inches in the forecast? I know that my road that goes home over that bridge oftentimes is in bad shape. So yeah, the first events of the season oftentimes create higher dilemmas and impacts on the public uh, than, say, a middle-of-the-winter snowstorm. Now, I want to talk about how we warn. You alluded to this sort of communication aspect or uh, getting it right going forward. Do we have the right tools in place as a meteorological community to warn about snowstorms and winter weather. I mean, I, I know, for example, you guys here at the Weather Channel do your the winter storm naming, and I know that the uh, Hazard Simplification Program, the National Weather Service, has cut back on some warnings. I think they uh, even did some things uh, in terms of how they warn for squalls and buffalo. Uh, so people are thinking about how to communicate. What's your assessment of our ability to, to and tools to warn about winter weather? Well, I certainly think we're improving. And as an example, I want to talk about, again, working with for the National Weather Service for most of my career, a recent advance in the way that they develop what we refer to as probabilistic forecasting for snowfall events. And what I'm saying is what we do is we look at the probability that an event will occur. Uh, and we break this down into percentages. So for any given snowstorm like this one here, 
there was a 90% chance that we were going to see two inches or less snow based on computer model data early on. But there was a 10% chance, 10% only, that we could see four or five inches of snow. That type of information gets presented to emergency managers, to Department of Transportation snowplow crews, to those types of entities, and using that probabilistic data, they can then use a cutoff point. The snowplow driver may say, unless we get to a 30% chance or more that we're going to have a significant snowstorm, I'm not putting my drivers out. I'm not calling in extra people because that's going to cost a lot of money. And in the long run, the cost benefit's not there. So this type of probabilistic forecasting that the National Weather Service is getting on board with now is a great step in the right direction. But it, it, And I agree completely. But we do some of that when we convey rainfall forecasts, for example. We use probabilities and whatnot. And oftentimes I have found, it's been my experience, that the public sometimes gets confused with probabilistic forecasts, uncertainty conveyed by the hurricane cone. Um, do you con- worry that that would be a concern in this regard? I do. And there's a lot of education that's taking place to educate the public on these types of specific forecasts. Right now, that information is most useful to the planners, the emergency planners, the school superintendents, and those that can make the decisions for the general public and say, listen, after we've looked at everything here, our decision is we're going to close the schools tomorrow. The public really doesn't even have to know what that decision was necessarily based on, they just have to be aware of it. And again, these decisions can't be made two hours before the event. In today's world, oftentimes, as in this example, the decision to close schools, the decision to close businesses had to be made the night before because at 6 a.m. in the morning when mom and dad are sending Junior off to school and everybody's ready to go and leave the home, that's too late. Is, yeah. You just can't change your plans that easy. And that was a dilemma we faced within the National Weather Service when I worked And there. I've struggled with that as well because many of these decisions really do need a bit more timing. And one of the challenges I see is that People do. I think when you have these probabilistic scenarios that you just talk through, there are going to be times where you warn, you plan, and you react a certain way, but then perhaps nothing happens at that scale. And then that creates in some people's minds the cry wolf. How do we combat that? Well, I think we have to continue to work with newer and newer tools to help us be more confident as to how these impacts are, 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 are how this is going to impact the public. Right. The other thing that just rings home to me time and time again, Marshall, is the fact that the impacts reach a certain scale, but at certain times of the day, they get elevated exponentially. So the snow that comes down at 10 in the morning or even more 10 at night is not going to be as impactful as a snow event that hits at 4 o'clock in the morning, as an example, before everybody leaves for work or getting right into the morning rush hour, or much more importantly, during that afternoon time frame, Everybody's already at work or school. They're at their destinations, and the snowstorm begins. Just before the rush hour, everything goes down the tubes, and at that point, that is the most critical, critical time for any types of these winter weather events. And these are the types of events where you have to begin to bring timing into that decision as to whether you warn people and then uh, brief emergency managers that, hey, Let's check the time of day here. This may be one where you 
you, you may be crying wolf, but this may be one where you have to raise that cost-benefit bar a lot higher. Yeah, I was, as I was thinking about this uh, coming up here in early December in Georgia, the National Weather Service has something called an integrated warning team where they meet with meteorologists and emergency managers and talk about planning uh, for the, the winter ahead. Which brings me to the question, we, we're talking about the northeast with this particular storm, but for the south, does the south a different or more difficult challenge uh, in terms of these types of events? And if so, why so? Very good question. And one of the most important reasons that the South, yes, is a much bigger challenge in, in some ways because they don't have the equipment. They don't have the resources to pre-treat. Atlanta was an excellent situation. There was only two inches of snow. Right. Two inches of snow that fell early in the afternoon. And once again, as the snow fell, the temperature went down rather than go up. In that situation, you could not pre-treat all the roadways. And by the way, and I found this when I moved down here, hilly Atlanta. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of topography. That's and, right. And so what happened in that situation is cars hit those wet roadways. Tens of thousands of people were released from work. As the temperature continued to drop, the pressure of the tires melted the snow. But guess what it did then? It refroze into refroze. a layer of ice. Exactly. And because there's no resources in the south to pre-treat, were very limited, there was nothing that could be and done. And it's that it goes back. People, you know, people do poke fun of, at us here in the South. But look, we don't get the type of snow that the Northeast gets to justify the the armada of snow, snow trucks and salt trucks and whatnot. And that's correct. And without those kind of treatments, um, without the salt on the roadways, I've told my Northern friends uh, since moving down here that I would challenge any one of them to try to drive on a road that is snow or ice covered that has not been treated. Absolutely. Uh, nobody can do that. Right. It is extremely dangerous. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Let's let's kind of circle back to sort of our and put on both of our meteorological hats as meteorologists here. What do you feel, Tom, as one of the world's top experts in winter weather forecasting, what do you feel we are lacking in terms of either observational or modeling capacity to improve our ability to nail some of these uh, systems? That's a great question. I think an entire cadre of tools needs to be um, needs to be enhanced computer programming, more sophisticated computer modeling that can handle the, the microphysics of the atmosphere, how precipitation changes within the atmosphere, the initialization of the model, knowing what the atmosphere is as we begin the model run, because if we don't know it accurately, tiny errors can be accentuated in time. And so computer power, modeling, data initialization, and then taking all of that information and being able to integrate it into a forecast product is where we need to continue to work. The other ingredient here, the other part of this is communicating with emergency management, decision support with emergency managers, with DOTs, with all of those groups to be able to get then communicate this information to the public and make decisions. Yeah, that's a great point. I know one of the things, you know, I, I've been – toward teaching in some of my classes at the University of Georgia as uh, Doppler and dual polarimetric radar. Uh, are you finding that particular tool of value in winter weather assessment right now? Oh, certainly. Yeah. Certainly the the ability to use dual pole, um, to use the Doppler radar and the dual pole radar to interrogate for precipitation type, how these little processes are changing within the lower atmosphere is important in a very short-term sense. But um, for the public in particular, 
those short-term decisions may not provide them with the type of timely information for them to make the decisions. So for me, I want to continue to see the modeling efforts improved here, higher temporal and spatial resolution to these models, make them more fine-tuned so then in the 6 to 24-hour time frame, they're more accurate at giving us an idea of the type of precipitation that may occur. And you mentioned something when we first started talking. You said some of the higher resolution models were the ones that were sniffing out some of these tendencies. Um, and that's because they are, uh, and, and just a little 101 here for the listeners here, because this is weather geese. We want to break it down for you. Um, essentially, models are solving complex equations on grid points. And when we talk about resolution, just think about your, your cell phone or your camera on your phone. The more megapixels it has, the better the resolution of the picture. Well, in a model, when we talk about higher resolution, that means it's down at maybe one kilometer as opposed to 10 kilometer on each of those grids in the, in the model. And so you can represent more of the processes rather than parameterizing them or sort of fudging the numbers a bit. Is that right? Yeah. And for those geeks that know modeling a little bit, the day before the GFS, our U.S. It's the American model, yep. Lower resolution yes. model was giving New York City a high temperature, well, a temperature at about 4 o'clock that, uh, that afternoon of 43 degrees. 43, wow. The mesoscale wharf model, this is another model that is run within the U.S. model cadre, that model was giving them a temperature of 34 degrees. Think of that, a 9-degree difference. It was 33 degrees at that time. And so that mesoscale, small-scale, high-resolution model did a much better job in handling the lower atmosphere. Now, did it do that because it has a cold bias that it always is cold? Did it do it because it understood the atmospheric processes? This is where researchers continue to yeah. work to understand how this is all working. But that's the type of information that the Weather Channel's forecast team integrates within their decision-making process. It may very well be that that... Um, that formula that operates within the Weather Channel's process of putting out a forecast was fine-tuned enough to give us a forecast of four, inches, four and a half inches of snow for Central Park, which was not that bad compared to some of the other forecasts for that day. Yeah, I'm looking at some of the numbers here. Um, 6.9 inches is what uh, Central Park got, and um, just based on some of the numbers, you you were the, the closest of some of the organizations you're comparing to. Same for some of the middle parts of the uh, Pennsylvania, New York, and whatnot. You, you all were closer to what actually fell. So whatever you're doing, it worked in this case. Now, I mean, clearly there are cases where you maybe have your own challenges as well, but in this particular case, it worked just fine. So uh, that's a kudos. Uh, that's a testament to sort of whatever it is you're doing here. But it sounds to me like you are still thinking about ways to optimize the way not just we forecast the meteorology of these events, but how we communicate them as well. I mean, is there some magic solution? I mean, is, is there something, Tom, that if you could be the head of the whatever organization you would implement from a, not from a weather standpoint, but from a communication standpoint. I got away from the mic there. I got so excited about that question. Uh, is there something that you would just like to see happen that we are not doing from a communication standpoint? Or is it just a probabilistic? That's part of it. I think, I, I think continuing the communication and make sure that, that those who are listening and making decisions understand that they're not going to read between the lines on this. When you say to them, hey, at 4 o'clock, the snow is going to come down at 2 inches an hour, this is what that means to you. Don't let them uh, – don't assume that that person is going to say, okay, well, then I have to do this, this, and this. You have to provide that 
added information as well. If I had my way, if I was king, I would introduce an AI, artificial intelligence type system, that would look at these particular high impact situations when not only you're getting heavy snow, but you're getting heavy snow in a highly populated area. And between, if it occurs between the hours of 3 and 5 p.m., as an example, then the impacts are going to be exponentially higher. Then the type of alert that goes out, whatever that alert is going to be to the forecaster, to whoever, is, hey, this one is way beyond where a typical storm would be impact-wise. And bringing in all of that data and using artificial intelligence, computers to really put all of these, this type of information together, I think I think that would go a long way in helping us identify these types of events. Yeah, I've got one last question for Tom. But before we do that, I want to give a shout out to Dr. Brad Johnson, who's one of my Ph.D. students, who actually the week of this event we were talking about defended his dissertation at University of Georgia. And the topic was urbanization and winter weather in the northeast corridor along the I-95 corridor there. And he was looking at this rain snow line and the sort of impacts of urbanization on mixed phase precipitation, freezing rain versus snow. So um, Brad often jokes that maybe because he now lives in the D.C. area, his defense actually brought along the storm. But before I before I let you go, Tom, I, I can't let you get out of here. You're the winter weather expert for the Weather Channel without getting your take on what the winter looks like based on sort of some of your early thoughts and prognosis. It's a question I know you get. So I, I, I get a lot. And we did have a, a recent Weather Geeks with uh, Greg Postel and Judah Cohen talking about their outlook on things. What are your thoughts? Well, let me say at the outset that um, I'm not all that sold on a full seasonal forecast because there are so many parameters that can come into play with seasonal forecasting. Um, and very recently, there have been so many other researchers who have come forth and said, hey, it's not that simple. It's not something like... So we'll talk. tell us before you kind of go into that, what do you mean for the listeners when you talk about seasonal forecasting? So this would be a forecast for the entire winter season. As an example, for December, January, and February, overall, what we'll forecast is whether it may be colder or warmer than normal, and more or less precipitation. Those are the two parameters that we will look at over an entire winter. Well, first of all, it's not going to be that way during the entire winter. Right. We know in any given winter, even our warmest winters in the Northeast, we've had some massive Northeast snowstorms. And so we have to understand those types of forecasts are made for those who may be in the uh, utilities industry where gas suppliers will be buying more natural gas overall for a winter because it may be deemed colder than normal for a certain area. And a lot of the forecasts um, have been based on global parameters such as ENSO, El Nino, the tropical warming of the Eastern Pacific. Sure. But researchers now like Judah Cohen and others have looked at other high latitude forcing, Arctic sea ice, snow cover in Siberia, these types of factors that also can help modulate the winter overall. It's fascinating to see, and uh, the, the meteorological emails and chat rooms are full of a lot of information now over the past week or two here that the back end of the winter could be really interesting. I've seen some of that. For the eastern chatter. United yeah, States. I've seen that. Setting up a pretty cold pattern across the yeah. eastern U.S. When our original seasonal forecast, a lot of them were suggesting warmer than normal, normal overall. I, because I like winter, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's going to be interesting to see. I might put my money on the fact that we could have a very interesting back end to the winter. And, and we are uh, projecting, at least I've seen some NOAA stats, is projecting El Nino setting in. Is that right? Uh, weak El Nino, yeah. the, the last I had seen in the last couple of weeks here. And weak El Ninos can have all different, they can go in a lot of different directions for the east. Um, one of the weaker El Ninos produced one of the coldest winters on record in 76, 77, back when when I was in school. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But Marshall, when I used to get called in the National Weather Service to give a winter forecast, regardless of the forecast, I would always, always end it by telling people to keep their snow shovel and their skis handy. <laughs> that, that is good advice, and I think that's a good place where we're going to end it today. Uh, Tom, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. It's been great to get your expertise. Oh, great to be here. And thank you for again for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you.